0: So, Pam, tell us, what is it like in Afghanistan right now, especially for people who are living in places like Kabul?
1: For many, many people, it's really a dire situation. I mean, really hand to mouth and day to day. And because so many funds have been cut off, so much aid has been cut off, because the winter is so harsh and because money is so scarce, many millions of Afghans are reduced to living really at the margin of survival.
0: Pamela Constable is a longtime foreign correspondent for The Post. For the past few weeks, she has been reporting from Afghanistan on the humanitarian crisis unfolding
1: there. You know, I visited a number of very poor uh, homes in communities, uh, different parts of Kabul in recent weeks. And, you know, you'd go into someone's kitchen and there'd be like, you know, two potatoes and an onion. And that was it. And then you'd realize that it's very cold, even though everybody's sitting around a stove because there's nothing in it. There's no wood. There's no coal. There's no money to buy it.
0: As winter continues, so many families in Kabul especially are experiencing the same things.
1: People, many families that I talk to, send out their children to scavenge in the streets for old pieces of wood, old pieces of coal, and even worse, plastic. People use plastic to burn at night to keep warm and it's extremely toxic, as I'm sure you know. But if it's all you've got, it's all you've got.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 27th. Today, we're bringing you a picture of Afghanistan five months after complete U.S. withdrawal. And we're looking at why a hunger crisis is forcing the Western world to grapple with how to save lives without benefiting the Taliban. After Taliban forces swept to power, foreign aid into Afghanistan dried up. The international community worried that aid money would be misused by Taliban officials. So that money stopped coming. Banks stopped operating there. Billions of dollars in Afghan assets were frozen. And things have gotten desperate.
2: Freezing temperatures and frozen assets are a little combination for the people of Afghanistan.
0: That's U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres.
2: Babies being sold to feed their siblings. Freezing health facilities overflowing with malnourished children. People burning their possessions to keep warm.
0: But after several months of negotiations, the floodgates of foreign relief aid into Afghanistan have finally reopened. This month, the U.N. announced an appeal for more than $5 billion in emergency aid for Afghanistan.
2: Our largest ever humanitarian appeal for a single country.
0: And the Biden administration has committed $300 million.
2: The assistance is essential to ramp up life-saving food and agricultural support, health services, treatment for malnutrition, emergency shelter, water and sanitation, protection and emergency education. These are all critical investments to help Afghans help themselves in rebuilding their lives and building a future for their children.
1: And so it took A little time for some of that to start gearing up again. Now there's quite a bit of humanitarian aid getting in, but it's still tiny compared to the need. Um, When I was there recently, I went to visit a number of sites where food was being distributed to the poor um, by various international groups. They were getting wheat and rice and other basic staples. Um, But that's really a drop in the bucket because we're talking about a country of 38, 39 million people people. And there's a little bit more coming in every day than there was. And there's been a lot of effort to find ways to get humanitarian aid into the country without um, uh, going against the international sanctions on the Taliban regime. And that's been a very tricky process, but it is starting to happen now. But so again, it was slow to start. It was hard to manage. And it's gotten much more difficult because of the harshness of the winter.
0: Tell me a little bit about why it is more difficult now than it has been in the past to get some of this aid to Afghanistan, both in terms of logistically delivering it and getting it to who it needs to be with, but also if there are concerns around giving aid to to Afghanistan in this moment.
1: There's concerns of all kinds. There's been this very, very complicated crisis going on and, and this real, you know, push and pull tug of war um, between, you know, the international desire to help the country and the international desire not to help the Taliban. So that has been mm-hmm. a huge issue going on for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, now several months. And it's really only been, I would say, in the past month that you began to see some resolution of that conflict. You began to see plans actually materializing, for getting getting aid out in a systematic, expansive way. That argument is still there. I mean, the issue is still there. But basically, the international community finally decided that they really had to get help to people. You Mm -hmm. know, you can't punish a government and kill all the people. I mean, you, you can't. So it was technical, it was logistical, but mostly it was political.
0: And what are some of the strategies to either circumvent the Taliban or circumvent these concerns about whether it would help empower the Taliban by providing aid to people who really need it?
1: Yeah, that was very carefully worked out um, with all the international aid groups. Um, They're all functioning. They're all um, located in this very big, secure compound outside the city. It's United Nations compound um, that's been there for a long time. And so all of the international aid groups are now based there and their staffs are based there, their their foreign staff and their, their local staffs. The agreements have, that have been made have been made with various entities, various governments, various UN agencies, and with the buy-in of Taliban agencies. And they are legally and technically designed to make sure that the money, the funds themselves, do not pass through the hands of the authorities. They pass directly to the aid groups. And a lot of the aid groups already had a lot of uh, supplies stored in the country. And now they're getting funds to enable them to release those supplies and distribute them. For example, um, the Biden administration issued some legal rulings that allowed um, for certain kinds of licenses for exports to be given an exemption from the sanctions so that those particular exports could be sent to the aid groups. It was all the effort was to sort of streamline and narrow the pattern of how the funds got there so that, um, at least in theory, they're not going through any official hands in Afghanistan.
0: And is the concern that the Taliban, if they did have access to this aid money, that they would use it for themselves, that they would steal it, that the aid wouldn't get to where it was intended to go?
1: That has been a concern, although at least in their statements, the Taliban have been very welcoming of the aid. They've promised, you know, repeatedly, all the different ministers who spoke on this issue and officials promised repeatedly that they won't interfere. Not only that, the food distribution, I went to three different food distribution sites and the Taliban were guarding. The Taliban were there as guards, armed guards, to keep the supplies from being stolen, to keep people in line to sort of smooth the process. And there was a lot of paperwork. They weren't just standing around. There were international aid officials in all of these um, sites, these warehouses with lots of paperwork, signing things, handing people, and then people would get their wheelbarrows full of rice and the Taliban would guard the trucks. So they've been trying to participate and show that they are doing so in a, in a useful way.
0: And I'm curious more about what the Taliban sees in all this, and and if they're worried about how this reflects on their leadership, that just a few months into taking back control of, of Afghanistan, the country is essentially facing a hunger crisis.
1: Well, their response, their official public response in many statements and interviews has been to blame the West and to blame the UN and to say you know, even specifically, if people die this winter, it's going to be your fault, not ours. Hmm. That's their position officially.
0: And what's their argument for that? Like, what, what's their rationale for saying that this is, in fact, the fault of the West?
1: Because all the money was cut off. Before the Taliban were in power and there was a civilian government, the government's budget was 75% supported by international foreign aid. That was cut off Mm -hmm. with no notice. Not to mention the development aid, projects, contracts. The banks were all shut down. The local banking system was cut off from international fund. Western Union was cut off. Everything was cut off. Money stopped circulating. And so people couldn't buy anything. People could barely even get a fraction of their savings out of the local banks because they had no more cash. The banks were, and they still are, allowing people to go once a week or every two weeks to collect very small amounts of money, either from their owed salaries or their personal accounts, but it's very scant compared to what would have been. In other words, there's no real economic circulation. There's no credit cards. There's no ATMs. There's no way for people to get money to use, to spend, to survive.
0: So it sounds like the aid that is just kind of restarting to come into the country and being provided to, to many people in Afghanistan, that it's still not going to cover the massiveness of the need of the people who live there right now. And so how does that change? Like what is how does Afghanistan become more of a country that can sustain itself economically?
1: That remains to be seen. Um, I think one has to wait until spring you know, winter is always a very hard time in Afghanistan. People hunker down, people stay home. You know, m- much of the activity, the public activity just shuts down. Schools shut down, for example. A lot of public offices shut down. So in the spring, when people start sort of coming out, you know, of their very meager survivalist mode, which has been going on, you know, for for many, many, many years. It's, I mean, harsh winters are not new and poverty is not new. It's one of the poorest half dozen countries in the world. This is not like Pakistan or Turkey or, you know, I mean, it it is a very, very poor country to begin with. Um, But everyone feels that if we can just get through the winter, that's kind of the phrase, right? If we can just get through the winter, maybe things will start opening up. For example, international flights are starting to open up now. Uh, You can fly into um, Afghanistan and out of Afghanistan to several surrounding um, capitals and nearby countries. That's new. That's, that's going to be a source of help. Uh, Western Union has started to function a little bit. You can send two or $300, which is a lot of money in Afghanistan. I mean, that could, a whole family could live on that for several months. So you're beginning to see other ways that people are going to be able. And people share. It's a, it's a country where very, families are very large and everybody shares with each other and everybody helps each other. So that, that will also help.
0: After the break, we talk to Pam about the other ways that Afghans' lives have changed since the U.S. withdrawal in August. We'll be right back.
3: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
0: Right now, there are many unanswered questions about the future of Taliban rule. But there are ways that life in Afghanistan has gotten better over the past few months.
1: Yeah, one of the things that that is true and that is a good thing is that there's no more war. And people can travel without worrying about being attacked by the Americans or the Taliban or the ISIS. I mean, you can drive across Afghanistan, which I had not been able to do in many, many, many years. Now you can, you know, you you feel the government encourages people to travel and has been encouraging people to go back to their homes, those who were displaced by fighting, This is a small point, but a couple of weeks ago, um, the government started abolishing or shutting down some of the political institutions. And one of them was um, the Ministry of Peace. And when uh, I asked one of the Taliban spokesmen about shutting down the Ministry of Peace, he said, well, the war is over. We don't need a Ministry of Peace er- anymore. You know, so they, they see they're very proud of that fact. Now, again, there are still bombings by ISIS. There are um, some uh, rebellious parts of, of the country that are trying to fight back uh, with the Taliban. But for the most part, the country is peaceful. And that is something that all Afghans have been longing for for a very, very long time.
0: So what happens next in Afghanistan after the aid comes in after the winter? What happens next?
1: I think, again, uh, for that, it's important to sort of shift back to the issue of um, how much freedom people have and how much rights they have, not to set aside the humanitarian crisis. But in terms of what's going to happen, I think a lot will depend on um, how people are able to live. I mean, not just eat and survive the night, but how they're going to be treated, whether they're going to stay. People are still trying to leave the country. Obviously, the major evacuation is is finished, but people are going to the borders and leaving in fairly large numbers. People are still sort of in wait and see mode. Um, They've seen a lot of things that concern them, like restrictions on women and girls, not being allowed to go to school, not being able to go to university, uh, women restricted from most kinds of work. But the Taliban keeps saying that those are temporary measures. And that they are going to allow women to work and girls to go to school once they're able to set up a proper Islamic structure so that they can be separated from men. And so they are trying to rebuild an Islamic society that they had for just a very few years and to do it in a way that meets their own beliefs and and rules, but that also acknowledges the changes in Afghan society, that acknowledges that they can't be as harsh as they were. They can't be as cruel as they were. They have to be a bit more accommodating and a bit more lenient. And they have said that they will be. There have been exceptions. There have been a lot of things that have happened that have been of great concern. There are people who've been killed. There have been people who've been arrested. Um, There have been protests that have been uh, stopped. But the Taliban are trying to show that they are a bit more open now, a bit more, um, I guess, humane, while constantly adding the caveat that everything they do has to conform with their very strict version of Islam.
0: Pamela Constable is a foreign correspondent for The Post. Reni Spernovsky produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Renny Svernovsky and edited by Maggie Penman. A big thank you to Aziz Tassal for translations. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.